peace to you. Thank you for joining me for the Naked Truth. It's the weekend, so we're going to pick up where we left off in the Gospels. The third one, third book in the Gospels, chapter 16 of the book of Luke. If you want to read along with me, let's begin in verse 1. He also said to his disciples, there was a certain rich man who had a steward, and an accusation was brought to him that this man was wasting his goods. So I got to be careful how I read this, except to remember it's, it's red letter, so it's Jesus saying it. It's Jesus talking, and he's giving us now uh, a story, but it's not a parable. He didn't say specifically that this was a parable, and he's, you know, when he's talking in parables, uh, nursery rhymes, uh, but Christian nursery rhymes, he often lets us know, or the narrator will say it. Here he's not, it doesn't say anything about a parable. So he's giving us an example of somebody who's loaded, somebody who had a lot of money and who had a servant, someone working for him. Uh, but the person, a uh, report about the person being wasteful of the business has been brought to him. Verse 2. So he called him and said to him, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your stewardship, for you can no longer be steward. So the boss has called him in, and he's asking him, what's up with this? I hear that you're kind of crooked. I'm going to take your job away from you. Uh, let me know what's going on, unless you let me know something else is up with this. Verse 3, then the steward said within himself, what shall I do? For my master is taking the stewardship away. I cannot dig. I'm ashamed to beg. So now the steward is saying to himself, uh, he has, this isn't what he's answering his boss. It's what he's thinking over before he gives his answer, presum presumably before he answers, saying what should he do. He, On one hand, he thinks he'll lose his job if his stewardship is taken away from him um, if he answers with the truth that, yeah, it's true, he's been cooking the books. Or if he tells him, uh, but that means he'd end up having to go out and do manual labor, blue-collar work, instead of white-collar, because clearly he's going from keeping the books uh, to having to go and dig. And he's like, he's not going to do that. And he's saying he's ashamed to beg. So he's not willing to work um, and sweat outside as a blue-collar worker. And he's and on the same level with that in his mind is the that might as well be begging. He's not willing to do either one of those things, willing or able, perhaps. Maybe he's not able to do blue-collar work somehow. Um, so, he's, so he's thinking, what should he do? Verse 4, I've resolved what to do, that when put out of the stewardship, they may receive me into their houses. So you might have noticed if you're reading this along with me, there's a couple of words that I you know, they're there, obviously, and I just didn't say them out loud. If this is your first time reading with me, I'd say refer to the reading we did here, The Naked Truth, on Matthew twelve thirty-seven. If reading that verse yourself doesn't give you clarity, that verse says, basically, well, I'll try not to paraphrase, for by your words you'll be justified, and by your words you'll be condemned. That's Matthew twelve thirty-seven. So. It's Jesus' red letters letting us know, in my understanding, that there's a price we pay for the things we say um, that's good or bad. So if we say good things, positive things, uh, 
the price of that, the the manifestation of that is good and positive things. Whereas if we spend our same time, our energy, because that's I think what it amounts to energy being expounded on that, expended on that, spent on that, invested on that. Um, in those negative things, the likewise that's what's gonna happen. Manifesting negative things will manifest in our in your existence by saying them. So even if they're in the Bible, like I've said before, I'd say be careful about reading them out loud. Read them absolutely if you want to, but I'd be careful about saying them out loud, even if especially if they're in the Bible, and maybe even when they're red letters. Um, so this is Jesus saying these things, but if you read what's being said, if you I would just say you run the risk or you, because it seems the way the universe, the way things in the world work is the reaping what we sow and the planting the seeds and the manifesting in our lives even boils down to maybe even is most powerful with the things we say and the words we put out there and the energy we put out there. It seems that the system of the universe recognizes that and acts on it and manifests it for us, whether we mean it or not, whether we, uh, I mean, if we mean it even more so, I think, because then we put different energy, more a faithful type of energy focused into it. But even when we don't mean it, like you might want to, might just casually cuss somebody out and not think anything of it. Um, it may have not, you may not have meant it, um, you know, from your heart, but you still said it. Or, or did it, or what Myru said, you still said it, you still did it. It's just to blame it on the edit. Whatever you want to do, it still happened, but it's still there, and that energy still exists, and it still manifests, good or bad. That's just what I believe. And so the fact that Jesus is saying it, I'd say be even more careful with um, saying it out loud. Things like um, claiming to be the one just in reading it as it's written, um, claiming to be the one who did come up short, who did cook the books, who did waste the goods, who is going to have it taken away from you. Because that's how it reads if you read it um, just as it's written. One last thing before we move on, and I'm only going to this just because this may be the first time of someone reading along with me. Um, if we go to the King James Version of the of these same scriptures rather than the New King James Version. So I find the New King James Version easier to read. Um, if we go to it, sometimes the understanding and the words are actually different than um, than what it is in the New. And the, since the King James Version is older, presumably its account is closer to what the original scriptures and intent of them was just like with witness statements, like they say in court in modern times, and probably long time, that the closer to the account um, that the, the statement is given, um, the more accurate it is, tends to be. Whereas, whereas more, when more time passes, our recollection of it is gonna change, even if you don't mean for it to, uh, just the mind has a way of doing that. And even when it's a fresh recollection, of what happened so many times what our mind actually recalls and records as the memory of it is not what actually happened at all um 
so say all that just to say that's how come I read the read it the way we've read it. Um, but it's like I said, if you want, read over Matthew twelve thirty seven, the reading here on the Naked Truth. It's their label, the readings by uh, chapter and verse, so it'll make it a little easier, I think, to find it. It's Matthew twelve thirty seven. All that being said, it's kind of a short chapter, so that's why I figured we'd go into it fully um, and move on. So now we're moving on. Verse um, 4. I am resolved what to do, that when put out of the stewardship, they may receive me in their houses. So that's where we left off. What he's decided to do there, the steward, who apparently knows that he has been uh, not so righteous in his record keeping, has decided what he's going to do and to save himself when he does lose his job. Verse 5, so he called every one of the Lord's debtors, debtors unto him and said unto the first, how much owest thou unto my Lord? So now I'm going to switch back to the um, New King James Version because now I can see the Old English stuff reads differently. Um. So I'm going to switch back real quick. Um, just in case you're um, not as your first time reading or you don't have a Bible reading along with you, I'm using the blueletterbible.org website um, as the one I'm using these days for the readings if you want to read along with me. And it lets you switch um, toggle from the different versions of the Gospels of the Bible, not just these two. I'm just using these two because these are the two that are, I'm most familiar with and that are most readily available, I think, to most people around the world. <clears throat> Excuse me. Now, back to where we left off. So now the steward has decided what he's going to do. He's going to call in everyone who owes his boss money. Why would he do that? Let's see. He's asking him, how much do you owe? Verse 6, and he said, a hundred measures of oil. And he said unto him, take thy bill and sit out quickly and write 50. Okay, I updated it, but I forgot to press go. All right, so he's telling, the first one says he owes 100 measures of oil. So he told him, okay, well, instead of owing 100, take your bill out then and write down 50 instead of 100. So he basically just cut the first person who owes his boss money. He cut their bill in half. He cut their invoice in half. He cut what they owe for the product that they've done business with his boss with in half. It would be just like if I were a president and owned a chain of hotels, uh, supposedly luxury high-end hotels. If you've read with me before, you know that every four-star hotel is not worth those four stars uh, from my recent experience in New York like a year ago, but that was a long time ago. But uh, but if you had a business like that, you could do the same thing. If you have 10 rooms available, luxury high-end rooms available, the highest, most expensive rooms available for a certain price, uh, and then you make the, uh, you have some cheaper rooms available, uh, also the same number of rooms available to, uh, at a different price, a much lower price point. If you had, say, government officials come and stay at your hotel chain, you could say rent out the 10 rooms to them at whatever rate you chose to um, impose on them at that time, because you know the government's going to reimburse you, which is, by the way, subsidies, which is, by the way, welfare. If you do that, though, you can get away with some wiggle room in the dirt 
buy instead of um, actually renting out to them those 10 high-end luxury rooms that you charge them for on the books, the $400, $500, $2,000 a night rooms, uh, instead of actually giving them those rooms, you could give them the $50 rooms. But on the books, you rent it out the $10, I'm sorry, the 10 of the $2,000 a night rooms. So you could see where you could make a whole lot of money from there and, and charging $50 on the books for a low-end room, which they actually get, but on the books saying, I gave them, I let them have 10 of the best rooms. Who would know? It's still in the same luxury hotel. It's just not quite anything anyone would know unless they're the ones actually entering the records, keeping the records like the record keeper we have, we're reading about here in the pair in the story, not necessarily a parable again. Um, so he's figuring out what to do. So he's figuring out where to make up that missing money, and he makes it up with the debtors. And in this way, he's making it up on the books so that what's missing will be less. And also, he's making it up with the debtors because it makes a friendship with them in two ways. In one, it helps save them on what they're paying on their invoice. So they're going to be happy with them. They have no beef with them. They won't have any problem changing the record and lowering it. But also, it now put, makes them co-conspirators in what he's doing. So they're even less likely to um, come forward with the truth because now they're in on it too. Uh, and the same thing again, he could work with the hotel room example that I gave you. He, uh, the owner of the luxury hotels could easily just say, well, just between you and me, let's give these, say, diplomats these 10 cheap rooms. We'll put it down as the most expensive rooms and uh, split the money some way, 50-50 or some other split between them. And then even form a way of having people come in constantly and funnel people to them to do it that way. Just as an example, as what the um, steward may have may do with um, his scheme that he's cooked up with to save himself. It's pretty crafty. Um, so verse 7, and he said to another, how much do you owe? So he said, 100 measures of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill and write 80. So now another one who owes 100 is getting to knock off 20% of his bill and now write 80 instead. So he's not saving as much as the first one who's in cahoots, but he's getting the save too. So he's, and he does, probably doesn't know. They're probably keeping it pretty secret with the markdown that he's get, giving them. So it's not like they'd share that information with other people, at least not at first. Um, whereas it's gonna be pretty obvious by the big grin on their faces before long, and they probably won't be able to keep it to themselves because that's what often does people when people win. They tell on themselves, he's, they're probably going to end up just going around bragging about the money that they're saving or maybe even pocketing to each other. And then one will find out that, hey, he's giving you 50% off, he's only giving me 20% off. But at this point, they're both cool too now with taking the markdown that he's giving them. Verse 8, so the master commended the un, did I miss one? I thought there was a third one, there was. Verse 7, then he said to another, how much do you owe? 
So he said 100 measures of wheat. And he said, him take your bill and write 80. And we did read that. I thought there were three and four and one. Verse 8. So the master commended the unjust steward because he dealt shrewdly. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in their generation than the sons of light. So listen to what Jesus is saying there. Let's not read over that. Excuse me. It's red letters, so it's Jesus saying it. Jesus is telling us that the people who are, I guess, the craftiest, wouldn't say the smartest um, or brightest, but definitely the craftiest, the quickest, the um, slyest, the slickest, are the people in the world, not the children of light, not Christians. The Christian, Christian people are not going to be the ones who are the um, fastest, craftiest people out there. They're not going to be the quick cobra or the slick rat. They're going to instead be the slow lamb. Uh, unfortunately, in many cases, the sheeple, the blind sheep that are looking for somebody to lead them and unfortunately being led by snakes and devils. It's a shame. But it's exactly what Jesus warns us about, and it's exactly what's happening in the real world. Um, but Jesus is saying, letting us know here, that's how it is. Sons of light, Christians in plain English. Um, and But even if not Christians, we'll just say it, keep it as what Jesus, Christians is how we say it now. But the term Christians didn't exist at Jesus' time. But I think that's what Jesus is referring to. But when, when what he's saying is sons of light, so people who have salvation. And he said sons. Let me just check and see what the um, translation of that is. Because I can't imagine he means specifically just males. I think when he says sons of light. Let's see. Okay, yeah. So if we go to, we're in the New King James Version, but if we go to the King James Version, it says children of light. So yeah, it's not just, Jesus isn't, of course, being sexist. Um, like much of the rest of the Bible, the patriarchal, it's in that translation, it says children. See, it's times like that where it makes me think we should go to the King James Version and read from it. All those thou's and thou's and stuff, it gets to be a bit, tough to understand and read, but at least we have a resource to go back and forth and check if we have to. So uh, just so we know it, so we see what Jesus is saying, his children, his kids, God's kids, the saved ones, the Christians are not as swift with the craftiness and the ways of the world as the people, children of the world are, the people who aren't interested in salvation. And it shows up, like I said, in modern times because you see so many people, and I don't think necessarily that they're Christian, but a whole lot of people who claim to be Christian walk around as sheep being led by devils. Verse 9, and I say to you, make friends for yourselves by unrighteous mammon, that when you fail, they may receive you into an everlasting home. Okay, so let's see just how that reads specifically, because if we read it as, I mean, how it reads in a different translation or a more original translation. Um, because that seems to be Jesus telling you us 
to make friends by doing the wrong thing. What sense does that make? It's Jesus saying, make friends for yourselves by unrighteous mammon. Make those shady friends that when you fail, they may receive you into an everlasting home. So it seems to me, as Jesus is saying, if you choose to do that, make friends for yourselves by those crooked means um, that when you fail, because it seems to me those crooked means are, it seems to me what Jesus is saying, determined to fail. Um, but when they do, those same people, those same friends you made um, through those crooked means will be there for you in an everlasting home. And it seems to me Jesus is saying that's where they're going to be stuck, that it's not a place where you want to be. It's not, it doesn't sound like it's some sort of paradise heaven that you want to be in where those friends you made from those, uh, through those shady means are. Um, but I guess at least you have connections there. You won't be alone. So, mm, verse 10, he who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much. And he who is unjust in what is least is unjust also in much. So that makes very good sense. Jesus is saying, if you can trust somebody with a penny, you can trust them with a pound. You can trust somebody with a little bit. You can trust them with your life. If you can trust, I've put that into practice in my life with um, knowing what to trust people with and where to draw the line with them. Like uh, some people I trust to eat their food. Other people, I don't. Uh, some people I trust to have um, sleep over here with uh, other people. I don't. Still would have them over, just wouldn't let them sleep over. Other people I trust that I'd sleep over at their house. Um, other people, I wouldn't. Some people, I trust their cooking, like I said, and others I wouldn't. Some people, I trust them uh, to do things with unprotectedly. Other people, I absolutely wouldn't. So I could totally understand that. And so, if, but if they're faithful in the least of things, they'll be faithful in the, if they're faithful in the small things, they'll be faithful in the big things. If they're not, then if faithful in those small things, if you can't trust them to even uh, keep their word and keep their pants up or not bend over other people and do other things, then you definitely can't trust them to do other things. So um, that makes kind of perfect sense. It's what Jesus is letting us know about faithfulness and uh, unfaithfulness. Verse 11, therefore, if you've not been faithful in the unrighteous man, who will give who will commit to your trust the true riches? So Jesus is talking about wealth in this um, verse. Mammon and true riches, both are wealth. One is uh, not right, though, and one is. Uh, but what? But they're not both money. Jesus is talking about um, mammon, which is basically uh, that unrighteous gain, unrighteous uh, wealth using money the wrong way to do the wrong thing. Uh, uh, whereas, um, I don't know, like um, a slumlord or a kingpin, something like that, or someone using it to uh, for righteous means. I don't know, I'm trying to think of someone without putting them on a pedestal. Uh, I guess someone who does things like uh, 
Oprah used to do or like Bill and Melinda Gates do with their foundation on AIDS, HIV AIDS uh, um, research and um, stuff. But other people too, um, like uh, uh, the basketball player who built the schools for the neighborhood kids. Uh, it wasn't Kareem, it was Magic Johnson, I believe. But just an example of people having money and not using it just to benefit themselves, but using it to benefit um, the greater good of society and the neighbor and the least among us, the things Jesus tells us to do, not just using it to see if they can have more money than someone else and every single dollar that they can. Um, but it's theirs to do with as they want, so don't want to be covetous. Therefore, but what Jesus is letting us know there if you aren't faithful in um, managing the things someone else puts into your trust to manage for them, whether it's their um, uh, buildings or their uh, properties or their savings, their checking, their portfolio, whatever it is that they trust you, their kids, their faith, uh, their house, their dogs, whatever it is they're trusting you, whatever it is, that you've taken the responsibility of to take uh, under your care on their behalf, if you haven't been faithful in handling that, then who's going to actually trust you to take care of the things that actually matter, the things of on high, the things of the soul, salvation, and so forth? Who can trust you with things like making it to heaven when you aren't being faithful with the things on earth? Verse 12, and if you've not been faithful in what is another man's, who will give you what is your own? So if in even managing other people's, um, uh, I guess we'll just say goods, um, books, uh, other people's property, OPP, if you haven't been man faithful in doing that, who's going to ever trust you or commit to you what is actually your own? It's not likely to happen because you haven't proven to be faithful in what other people have trusted you to manage and do. Verse 13, no servant can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. So Jesus is saying you have to decide because you can't do both. You won't faithfully uh Squirrel some stuff away for yourself, pilfer or grift for yourself, uh, and also faithfully uh, commit yourself, your heart, your hand, your energy to following God. It's impossible. I guess that goes along with, well, it's next to impossible. Because like Jesus tells us in another uh, part of the gospel, it's an, it's. It's nearly impossible for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Uh, like a camel going through the eye of a needle and although some preachers will twist that to say he means camel gate. He didn't say camel gate. And we know that it's not that impossible to get through a camel gate, a needle gate, because all you'd have to do is unload the baggage and then get through it. So then it's not impossible at all. If that were what he's talking about, it's not. That's adding to what he's saying, and that's dangerous and even blasphemous 
to go around and tell people that's what he's saying, that's what he means, and that's not even what he's talking about. Verse 14, now the Pharisees who were lovers of money also heard all, all these things, and they derided him. So now the Pharisees are the other religious leaders. They're the actual religious leaders, the people who go to as authorities on the religion of the day, of the people, of the moment. Um, and they're hearing what Jesus has to say, and they're throwing shade. That's what the deriding is about. They're gagging, they're laughing, they're mocking him because they don't want to agree. They don't agree with it. Verse 15, he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. So Jesus is calling them out. He's letting them know that what they engage in is theater. They make themselves appear to be righteous before the people with their collar or their headgear or their robe or their title or the things, the letters behind their name. They use that to gain authority over people and respect and reverence over people. And it works for them. Um, but Jesus is letting us know, letting them know also, God knows what's actually in their hearts though. And that everything that people call uh, uh, highly esteemed or prestigious is not necessarily highly esteemed or honored in God's eyes. Verse 16, the law and the prophets were until John. Since that time, the kingdom of God has been preached. Everyone is pressing into it. So that's a very interesting verse there because that sort of um, uh, lets us know maybe uh, more clarity on some of the other things Jesus says in the gospel. So let's take it bit by bit. Jesus is saying the law and the prophets were until John. So the law, um, in truth, are those Ten Commandments. That's what Moses received in what we call the Old Testament. The um, That's what the law is, those Ten Commandments. Not all those statutes, ordinances, and dogma that form later that the church, I'm sorry, not the church, the synagogue, the temple, the religious leaders, the people cooked up with and added to it later. But just those Ten Commandments, that's what the law are, is. Uh, the prophets, which I hardly wait to get to those when we get to them in the, our Old Testament readings of on the other days of the week. The prophets are very interesting reading, but they are, if they're to be believed, the um, people who were in touch with the divine and were able to foretell incidents, events that were going to happen and try and even use them many times to warn people and help guide people on their um, paths on what it is they should do. Excuse me. the prophets in the Bible, not all of them, but the ones that have the books named after them, were generally pretty faithful in their predictions and prophecies, and they usually came true at some point, uh, either in, um, in the books named for them or at some point later in the, um, in the accounts in the Bible, and in some cases even in Jesus's time and during Jesus' ministry did some of those come true. So those should be really interesting reading God when we get to them. So Jesus is saying the law and the prophets were until John. John the Baptist is the John Jesus is referring to here. And so what Jesus is letting us know, I believe, in that part of this verse is that 
that part in the big picture of things of what we're to understand about what the law is to be, Ten Commandments were for that and were given in that time, and the prophets were already existed and and given to us as humanity for that time all the way up until John the Baptist. I think that's what Jesus is saying. So people in modern times who try to change the law, expand the law, say what the, whatever, even in the Bible, I think what Jesus is saying for us to divide and understand what the law was, was that what the prophets were, were those, not any beyond them, all the way up until John the Baptist. So that's what my understanding is of that part. And then now the other part, even more interesting in that verse, since that time, the kingdom of God has been preached and everyone is pressing into it. So it seems to me what Jesus is saying that maybe up until that time, people weren't making it into the kingdom of God up until the time uh, that it's been um, been preached up until after John the Baptist's ministry of uh, repentance and baptism came so that maybe began a new era. Um, the floodgates being open for salvation for people to make it into the kingdom of God. And I say that because Jesus tells us in other gospels that no one is ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is the son of man who is in heaven. So that means Jesus. So that means no one else up until then, before then, had ascended to heaven. So maybe this was that turning point, what Jesus is signifying that another part in the grand scheme of things of his ministry uh, was um, opening up the kingdom of God to the people to be able to it to be to receive the preaching and make their way into it why else would he say that um, verse 17 and it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one tittle of the law to fail so Jesus is saying um, the law is set in what it was, those Ten Commandments. Um, and now he's saying, and it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for those to fail. So again, we can't and shouldn't, I believe, tack on all that other dogma um, and call that uh, the law of the Lord, if you're going to believe it's the Lord, because that's not how it happened. That's not even how it's written. And it's dangerous and risky to try and think you can live by all those because you can't. Even just those 10, it's hard to keep those all the time. Um, things like the covetous, covetousness, things like lying, uh, things like adultery, and they happen. So um, it, thank God for repentance and forgiveness. Um, so why add to the burden of tacking on all those statutes and ordinances that people cooked up? Um, that they don't even bother to live by. It seems to be dangerous and risky and a good way to fall away. But Jesus is letting us know that none of the law will fail, though. Um, verse 18, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced from her husband commits adultery. So Jesus is letting us know with those laws, one of them is the law of uh, thou shalt not commit adultery. But we have to remember the understanding of what adultery is now and what it is biblically. As we've read in the previous chapters on our other daily readings, um, marriage uh, could, uh, for a man 
could be as many women as he wanted, as he could afford, as long as they didn't belong as property to other men, to other people. The man also, only the man, the women weren't allowed to do the same thing. She couldn't have as many husbands as she wanted, not in this society that we've been reading about. But man, again, could have as many women, uh, wives, concubines, like side pieces, even prostitutes, and in some cases, even boys, the Kedisha, the Kedishim, they could even have um, all of those. And none of it is condemned. All of it is completely orthodox. Um, and society had no problem with it. Um, and we've been reading about that in our other daily readings. They even, strange as it seems or sounds, as part of their uh, worship rituals, it was popular enough that it's happened at least twice now that I can think of that we've been reading around about. And we're only in, we just wrapped up the book, book of First Kings. Um, it's happened at least twice where as part of the worship ritual of what the, what the people were doing was hiring prostitutes, male and female prostitutes, and engaging in sex. Uh, sodomy, it says, which in modern terms would be anal sex, um, but in, uh, um, I guess, orthodox terms, any sex that doesn't uh, uh, lead to procreation. So that could be any kind of sex, um, again, that doesn't lead to procreation, no matter what holes you're sticking it in or what holes are available or there. No matter what it is, if it's not to have a baby, it's considered sodomy or, you know, forbidden. Again, stuff that people cook up, not that's actually anything that uh, is written and absolutely nothing that Jesus even says. But speaking of what Jesus has to say, Jesus is letting us know when it comes to divorce, this these are where Christians, uh, where Christ draws the lines for, lines for us Christians about divorce that um and it seems to me what it's pointing to is the fact that when you get married the vows you make are up to you you are the ones that are entering into that contract completely voluntarily obviously generally speaking not forced marriages um not referring to them um so if you're gonna agree to something make a contract to do something uh, and swear before God and everyone, even if all your friends and family are there or not, if it's just the two of you or however many of you are entering into that contract, um, agree to that, then that's what you've agreed to. So if you've chosen to not keep that, that also that's breaking that contract you made before God and everyone. And again, it's not an unforgivable sin or anything like that. That's not the question. No, but the question is, it is still, that's what's actually adultery. But again, if we're going by what's in the Bible, you as a man can have as many women and side pieces as you want, and even prostitutes and males, uh, according to the Bible, without it being a problem. I think where the problem enters is when you don't share that with the person you're in the contract with. Because, um, uh, in modern times, I mean, in the Bible, biblical times, you actually don't even have to do that. It's up to the guy what he wants to do. Um, and But the fact that you're making it a contract and entering into it with someone is the part where you're making it consensual. So um, that is where the actual 
adultery would be. Um, because just having a side piece or having prostitutes while you're married um, isn't necessarily adultery, depending on your marriage. Some marriages include that in their um, in their marriage, where usually the guy is uh, allowed to or, you know, not forbidden from um, doing that, having other people outside of the marriage, and it's no problem between the two of them. So it's not actually adultery. So adultery isn't always what people may think of it as being, is my point. Verse 19, there was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. So now again, Jesus didn't say anything about a parable. So we have to presume that this is an actual person Jesus is referring to, another person who's loaded. We just read about one rich person. Now Jesus is telling us about another person who had a whole lot of money um, and was making money every day. Verse 20, but there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate. So the first thing to notice there is, in God's eyes, since is Jesus giving us this um, account of these people, is the one who stands out in God's mind, in Jesus' mouth, in Christ's story, by name, is the poor man. It's Lazarus, the rich man doesn't even get the prestige of his name being even remembered. That's, I think, a hidden message there for us to not read over. But the one who gets mentioned by name is the poor man. That's who stands out in God's eyes in the story. And um, he's full of sores, so he's dealing with health issues, and he's laid at his gate. So he may even be displaced, a homeless person, a person with its current um, uh, an unhoused person. That's who um, Lazarus seems to be compared to the rich person who's unnamed, um, who's making money every day. Verse 21. And the, the poor person and the rich person aren't that far away from each other because the poor person is right there at his gate. And the rich person has plenty of money, so if he really wanted to, there doesn't have to be a poor person who needs health care and uh, housing laid at his gate because he has enough money if he wanted to to do something about it. It almost sounds like modern times. The wealthiest one or 3%, however you want to think of it, whichever you prefer, have enough for everyone in the country, in the world, truly, but have enough resources among them um, to make life a whole lot easier for everyone else, at least in the country. Um, just like the rich man has the means to make Lazarus' life easier if he wanted to, if he even notices him. I don't know. Let's see. Verse 21, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So um, that's where Lazarus stands on the rich man's map uh, and agenda of what to do and things to handle and take care of. He's making so much money every day. He doesn't notice, I guess, that uh, the poor man who's laid at his gate and even feeding at, from his table is only being fed with crumbs. He's not actually getting a meal. He's getting crumbs, the crumbs that fall from the rich man's table. A lot like America, America's society now. 
So America, if this were a parable, it's not. Jesus is giving us an example of people and human behavior. Uh, but if it were a parable, uh, the parable, it seems to me, would be America, clearly, uh, where the rich are so healthy and living so large, they don't notice or pay attention to the poor, poor person being fed by their crumbs. If anything, they're annoyed by the poor people who are begging for their crumbs in traffic or uh, at the airport. Uh, and I've seen them in both. I've been traveling recently and seen it's it's sad uh, in airports uh, in Florida and I'm sorry, in an airport in Florida and in airports uh, in Indianapolis and uh, in St. Louis. I've seen homeless people, people living at the airport. You may think they're just travelers with their baggage. They're not. If you look closely, some of them don't even have shoes. Some of them have holes in the socks that they don't have shoes to cover. There's people living there at the airport, right next to people with the means to, uh, to travel and jet set. It's it's America. Um, but you see here in, the, in what Jesus is telling us, it's nothing new. The rich man has plenty and the poor man has nothing. And the crumbs that he's getting are um, at the foot of the rich man where the dogs are who tend to the poor man and um, even lick his sores. Verse 22, so it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. So now a fairly common event in world history and human experience in almost everyone's life is death occurred and both people have died. It says uh, the same term as died is being used. We're just curious to see if maybe in a different version. Nope, it looks like died. Uh, oh, the Greek word is, wow, it, I wouldn't even begin. Apophnistos, apophnistos. I guess that's how it is. Apophnisko. That's the word for died um, in the Greek for what's happened to them both. So anyway, they both died, the rich man and the poor man. But already we see the path of, that each of them takes is different. Excuse me. path that the poor man's soul takes when he died was being carried to eight by the angels it says his so his transport was with uh, the heavenly bodies to Abraham's bosom it says so presumably a hug a greeting with Abraham uh, if we're gonna take it as it says literally and so Abraham is the Old Testament patriarch the way it reads, kind of, kind of a scoundrel. Um, so, but he made uh, the right moves in God's eyes, apparently, at least according to Jesus, that he's made it to salvation. If we're gonna think of that as Abraham um, proper, since it is um, a possibility, but it could also be Jesus could also be referring to uh, 
what's in Abraham's bosom, your heart, what's in Abraham's heart would be the um, hope of salvation, the hereafter heaven. So it could just be a euphemism, another way of saying uh, heaven, that that's where the poor man who died was carried to, to heaven, to what's in Abraham's heart, to salvation, to rest, to um well, if we just take it as it's written, we'll just take it to Abraham's bosom to probably an embrace, a hug, a greeting by Abraham to the hereafter. The rich man, on the other hand, died and was buried. It sounds kind of flat. Says So he's been put in the earth. Um, and what's happened to him? We find out more. And it didn't sound like he was carried to his burial by any angels or anything. But he was buried. Let's see. Verse 23. And being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar and Lazarus in his bosom. So now, let's just see what these words uh, translate from. So, because um, we think of people as being, as being in hell, not Hades. Um, but the word Jesus uses is Hades. But if you look at the translation, um, the thing the tool that I'm using is the um, on the page is the notes tool. It's if you use the click the link tools there on the page, you'll see that there's uh, again it's the blueletterbible.org website in case you want to read along with me and see. Um, if you use the tools link to see what this word, these words were translated from, you'll see that in Hades doesn't exist there. So I'm going to go to the King James Version and see this is verse 23. I'm trying to remember. Um, maybe it'll make more sense there. Because it's when you do that, you see some things were just added. Okay, so now if, if using the King James Version, it doesn't say in Hades. It says in hell, which kind of makes more sense because where else would you be in torments and um, especially flames? It's going to say even flames. Oh, but hell here actually is being translated from Hades. So, but a lowercase h Hades, not a capital H Hades. Um, so it's not talking about the deity um, in um, is it Greco-Roman history um, and mythology named Hades, um, but specifically a place of torment. Um, it's saying hell. Again, if you're in the King James Version, it says hell. In the New King James Version, it says Hades. I wonder why and how they choose to use the different words there, but I don't want to get sidetracked any more than we already are. Um, but so we understand he's in hell. It's so whether you think of it as Hades or hell, he's in torments and he's in hell and he went there immediately. So some preachers will try to say there's no judgment until some great white throne judgment. That is discussed, but it's discussed in Revelation, like we discussed when we read it. That book, it's all 
authenticity, its authorship is uh, unknown. It's not known to be the same John that wrote the Gospel of John, and it's almost certainly not John the Baptist, but it's someone else named John. And it could still be a true account, but it doesn't even read the same way as the John in the Gospels reads, the way he writes in the Gospels. And um, even more tellingly, when he gives the account in Revelation, there's no recognition, recognition between him and Christ when they see each other again. If it was the same John, the, the disciple, at some point in Revelation, wouldn't there have been some point of recognition of, hey, Jesus, good to see you. Something where they recognize each other and give each other a dap, give each other a hug, uh, something. There's none of that. So it seems to me it's almost certainly not the same, any of the, the same John that we read about as the writer of John, uh, the Gospel of John. Uh, and so it's unknown. And also the way it's written, it's not written the same way the John, uh, the gospel writer writes in very subtle ways it's different but again it doesn't mean it's not authentic and we went over it because it does have red letters in it but it's not necessarily something you can count on it says things like four corners of the earth that's a human thing to say not a divine thing to say since we know the earth isn't flat so why would a prophecy use uh, a flat earth reference um when we know that Eric isn't flat to be divine, why wouldn't it say, as other parts of the Bible say, or at least one other part of the Bible say, the circle of the earth, if it's going to refer to the earth, at least that makes more sense that earth is spherical and it is more enlightened. It would make more sense than saying the four corners, just as one example. There were others, um, even in subtle things like the things Jesus says, he was here to hear, let him hear that's the way Jesus says it in all four of the Gospels, but it's said differently and subtly different in Revelation, which leads me to believe it's almost certainly not as reliable a source of the, of the red letters. Uh, but again, believe whatever you want to believe, but it's just not um, the same. So having said all that, we um, have here where Jesus is saying that one person died and went to Abraham's bosom seems a pleasant place because he was carried there even by the angels. The other person died and ended up in hell or in Hades, depending on what version of the Bible you're reading. Um, either way, not a good place. And he, where he's at, he can see April, he can see Lazarus still. So in life, he could see Lazarus and allow Lazarus, Lazarus to be fed with his crumbs. Now in death, in the afterlife, in hell, he's still able to see Lazarus. It's not clear that Lazarus is even aware of him anymore or to see him and or know what's going on with him. But it's clear where he's at in his torments, in hell, in Hades, though some preachers will try and twist this to say it doesn't mean Hades or hell. It's what it says, and it's Jesus saying it, so why would we make it mean something else? Um, from where he's at, he can still see Lazarus now. Verse 24, then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. So, and you can see how the rest of that verse ends. 
he is tormented in flame. So um, he's asking now in his privilege, the same entitlement he exercised in life, he thinks exists for him now in the hereafter. But he's about to get a wake up call because he's thinking now in his uh, privilege that he can even summon Lazarus to do what he wants him to. He's telling Abraham, uh, he's saying Father Abraham, who's uh, greeting Lazarus, it seems, in a different place. He's telling him to um, make Lazarus do what he wants him to, summoning Lazarus to do his bidding, just like he would have been able to do when he was alive. And he's saying he's tormented in flame. So again, let a preacher change it to read or say something else if you want to. It says clearly he's in hell and he's in the flames and he's being tormented right then. He's not waiting for the white throne judgment that Revelation talks about. He's been judged and he's in those flames now. Just as Lazarus has clearly been judged and he's in pleasant surroundings now. Just as we read when Jesus is on the cross and someone repents and finds salvation then on the cross, one of the uh, people who's crucified with him finds salvation then because Jesus tells him today you'll be with me in paradise. Some That same preacher who will twist those same preachers, it's a father-son duo, father's deceased now, but if you're a person who's sought uh, the Gospels, chapter by chapter and verse by verse, then you know who I'm referring to. Um, the Father's gone, but the Son has picked up with the same preaching of the same dogmatic lie. I'm sorry to say it is a lie. I knew the Father when he was alive, um, but it's still a lie, um, and it's just dogma. But clearly, they both passed away. And I'm, I'm sorry, uh, both, yeah, both Lazarus and the rich man, the unnamed rich man passed away. And again, it's not a parable. And clearly the uh, unnamed rich man is in hell and he's in torments. It even says he's in flames. And he's even still thinking he has the privilege of summoning Lazarus to do what it is he wants him to do, even though Lazarus has found peace in Lazarus, in uh, the bosom of Abraham, in that place where Abraham is resting. Verse 25, but Abraham said, son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus, evil things, but now he's comforted and you are tormented. So it seems that from where Abraham sits, he's able to observe the things that happen to Abraham, I'm sorry, to uh, along the way in the lifetime of Lazarus and the rich man. And he was able to observe that the, the, the rich man lived large and com comfortably. Um, that Lazarus also lived near the rich man, but didn't benefit one bit. Well, okay, he did get his crumbs. So he got the crumbs that um, the rich man let fall from his table. Excuse me. So I wonder if what Jesus is telling us here is that from the vantage point, the viewpoint of Abraham in the hereafter, he's able to see as time goes by what's happening in the human existence as things are playing out with people. Abraham is sitting in a spot where he can see 
just how wicked people are and just how righteous people are. He's getting to observe those things and greet people who make it to salvation. That's an interesting spot to be in that Abraham has made it to. Now, Jesus did say people are pressing into the kingdom of God. So I don't know if Abraham is, was always at this spot or has been at this spot since he passed away. Or if that's the spot he's been assigned since the kingdom has been opened, as Jesus said earlier. I don't know. But we see that both Lazarus and Abraham are in that chill spot where um, they have no worries. Whereas the rich man is tormented and in flames and desiring to even be fed with some water with the so to drip from the tip of, a, of Lazarus' finger to um, cool his tongue because he's that tormented in the flames. Again, believe what you want to. Believe what some preacher tells you. Or believe what Jesus tells us. He's saying it right here, plain English. And I know people will fight that because it does contradict what Revelation says. But how many other things and contradictions have we read about just here on our uh, past on the naked truth um, of what the Bible contradicts itself. Um, so we have a, you have a choice to make. Believe whatever you want to believe. Uh, believe what some preacher tells you or believe what Jesus tells us. And so as a Christian, I'm choosing to believe what it is Jesus is telling us. And clearly Jesus is telling us there's not some great white throne judgment that everyone is waiting for after some thousand year millennial period which is not something Jesus even says either. Instead, Jesus is making it clear that when people pass away, the soul, not the spirit, because if you're going to go by what, uh, and maybe the spirit, if you're going to go by what the Bible says about the spirit, not what some human says, the Bible says the spirit of the man, the spirit of man is the lamp of the Lord searching all the inner depths of his heart. Um, you can look that up yourself if you want to, and see. Uh, so that's what the spirit is. It's almost like a flashlight, a candle of the Lord searching the sea where wickedness lies in the human heart. Um, uh, and the heart, it seems to be, is what's being searched out. And the soul, it seems to be, is what's carrying the boat as the one making the trip, the one that's traveling in flesh, the one that's traveling in the hereafter. Um, just uh, as my understanding of how they all differ from each other. But um, here it seems uh, verse 25 but Abraham said when Abraham let him know that he's made it to his point of torment but Lazarus is now comforted that that's the reality of where things stand now. Verse 26, and besides all this, between us and you, there's a great gulf fixed, so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. So now this is an interesting statement here. How is he communicating with Abraham? He's not shouting across this gulf. Is he on the phone with him? Is he FaceTiming with him? How is he communicating with Abraham and Abraham communicating with him? But Lazarus is completely unaware, it seems, of the request, the summons that the rich man made for him to serve him and bring him some water. Somehow they're communicating across the gulf that's fixed 
And the same preacher duo that I mentioned earlier used his cult to throw intrigue into their audience and keep people listening, which it's an intriguing uh, uh, idea, but um, it shouldn't be something used to mislead people into believing lies because some of the other things that that same duo says are clearly lies. They contradict what's written, so that makes them lies. Especially when you knowingly do it, that absolutely makes it a lie. It might just be a deception if you don't know. But if you go through it saying, we know, then it's absolutely a lie. It's just like Jesus tells us. Um, so anyway, um, um, Jesus is letting us know here in the hereafter, it seems, there's a gulf fixed. There's an abyss. There's a... a, a like outer space, like deep space, there's a, a there's a large passage, a large um, gulf, a body like you think of a gulf, the Gulf of Mexico, or a large, <clears throat> excuse me, body of water. It, um, the word in Greek is chasma, so if you think of a chasm, um, that's a really good word for it. That's like a just like deep space, there's a huge partition between the people who um, are on one side where the rich man who's suffering and in torments is, and there's a partition, and there's another side where Abraham is with, the, with Lazarus. And again, I think there must be some sort of telecommunication device that's not being mentioned here for them to be able to communicate because the, um, and they're not in the same place. That same duo will try and tell you that it's paradise, that they're both in paradise. They're just on different sides of paradise. What nonsense. What kind of paradise would it be where somebody's tormenting and in flames and beg and doesn't want to be there? That's the main thing. Why would you call it paradise, but nobody, but the man who's there doesn't want to be there? It, it makes no sense. It's nonsense. But that same duo will try and tell you that that's paradise. But that's not true. And Jesus even tells us that's where, where I got sidetracked with the thought of the man on the cross who passed away and on the cross also alongside Jesus. Jesus tells him, today you'll be with, assuredly I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. Jesus lets him know you'll be with me there in paradise. Um, whereas that same duo will twist it and say that Jesus says, I'll see you in paradise. That's not what he says. And in twisting it, even in that little bit, it changes the meaning because even the man in hell could see Lazarus in paradise, but he wasn't there in that paradise. And it's very, very subtle and it's wicked to do that because, and I don't see the point of doing that other than intriguing people and roping them into believing other lies that you slip in. But you have to be very careful because those lies are subtle and they're dangerous because it's a slippery slope and once you start believing them. But here it is, Jesus is making it clear that there is a great gulf fixed and um, um, that the people on one side can't make it to the other side, uh, nor can those where the man in torment in hell make it to where Lazarus is uh, chilling in Abraham's bosom. And Jesus, when he passed away on the cross, let the one of the people know that he'd be with them in paradise. So presumably Abraham's bosom is that same paradise 
since that's where the um, uh, Lazarus ended up, ended up in his righteousness once he passed away. But I don't want to assume anything because there could be yet another pathway for the soul. We know there are is at least one other pathway for the soul to take um, once it passes away or once it leaves this dimension. Elijah, in his passage, he left in a whole different way, a unique way in the Bible. But we've read about him, and that's a whole other reading. And this reading, long enough as it is, so I won't dwell on it. We'll keep moving. But if you want to, you can read about Elijah in the readings also. Verse 26. I'm sorry, verse 27. Then he said, I beg you, therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house. So the rich man has humbled himself now that he's suffering and in torments. He's actually having to beg himself. The same thing Lazarus had to do when he was alive. Now the rich man's having to do it now that he's dead. He's begging Abraham um, to still summon Lazarus to do his bidding. What the nerve? It's, he's still begging Abraham to forced Lazarus to do what he wants him to do. Verse 28, and send him to his family who's still alive and living large, presumably. Verse 28, for I have five brothers that he may testify to them lest they also to this, lest they also to, to torment. So he's saying send Lazarus to his family to warn them so that they don't end up in that same hell that he's in, that place of torment, Hades, hell, flames, clearly flames, however you want to picture it, he's been judged and he's in those flames. Verse 20, and he wants Lazarus to go do warn his family. Verse 29, Abraham said to him, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. So Abraham is answering the rich man and telling him, no, I'm not going to bother Lazarus's rest by sending him on your some sending him on your do on your um mission to go and warn your shady family that's already living large no i'm not going to do that at all he's chilling now and i'm not going to interrupt it and instead your family lucky them already has people who are warning them they don't need lazarus to go warn them they have moses that person who brought the law those ten commandments again not all the dogma statutes and ordinances that religion kicked in later. Uh, none of that. Just those Ten Commandments. Those, that's the law that Moses got from the mountain in that moment. Um, he says that, so he's letting them know they have Moses and the prophets. So the prophets are the ones who point to Jesus. I don't know if I mentioned that earlier. I don't think I did. The prophets, that's what they did. Um, they warned people about the different events that they were facing and the different trials and tribulations that they were dealing with but also warned them about things to come and pointed to future events to look out for, namely the coming of Christ, the coming of the Messiah, the coming of Jesus in plain English. So um, Moses, um, so Abraham's letting them know, they don't need Lazarus to go let them know that. They know about Moses and they know about the prophets so they can hear them if they're really interested in avoiding the flames that you found yourself in. Verse 30, he said, no, Father Abraham. But if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. So now he's saying, he's telling Abraham, no, no, no. If you really want to convince them, go the extra mile 
and send them someone from the dead. Uh, you mean the thing that Jesus did? They're, they're, they're saying if someone rises from the dead who's experienced the afterlife, who's experienced death and been raised to life again, if someone who goes through those, who goes through that, shows up to them with a message, then they'll hear them for sure, no doubt. Just <laughs> send them him. They'll listen to him. We know they didn't hear Jesus. Jesus did go through that. And Jesus not only went through that, Jesus also presented people alive who went through that. He saved people from death and resurrected them during his ministry. I know it's articles of faith for everyone to believe that. Um, so believe what you want. But if you're to believe the very bare minimum as a Christian, to believe that Jesus himself raised from the dead, then um, you uh, we have to also believe that Jesus already did that. So they have the message of Jesus. So they have Moses, they have the prophets, and they also have Jesus. And even that wasn't, isn't enough to convince the world that there is a hereafter and to avoid the flames of the hereafter and reach for Abraham's bosom in the hereafter, reach for the paradise in the hereafter. That still wasn't, that still isn't enough to convince people, excuse me. So unfortunately, the rich man is naive and mistaken in thinking that sending Lazarus back would be enough to convince people to change their ways. It wasn't. It isn't. Verse 31, but he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. So I didn't mean to get ahead of myself there. Uh, the, uh, uh, Abraham is letting the rich man know. If the people ignore what it is Moses had to say, those Ten Commandments, thou shalt not lie, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not this, thou shalt not that. If people will ignore those Ten Commandments, which are said to have been given directly from God, Moses' encounter with God on a mountain. Um, so if people choose to ignore that, um, and the prophets, so they choose to also ignore the prophecies that arose after that. We're reading about some of them as we're going along our way in our other daily readings, but ultimately, though even the ones that point to Jesus and the coming of the Savior and the one who will bring the words directly from God for us to observe um, the fulfillment of those prophecies, if people choose to even ignore that, they're not going to be persuaded by Jesus either, though he rose, though he rises from the dead. And this is Jesus letting us know it himself, letting us know that he's still going to go through with his mission, knowing that even though he goes through with his mission, people weren't convinced by Moses, people weren't convinced by the prophets, they aren't, many of them, going to be convinced by him rising from the dead either. That's not going to be enough to save a whole lot of people either, unfortunately. That was the last verse in this chapter, though, so that's what we'll end this reading. As always, thank you for joining me for The Naked Truth, and I hope you'll join me again. I hope it's a blessing for you. I love you, and I'll see you next time. God bless you. Peace be with you.